So I, I hope that you all had a wonderful Memorial Day weekend. That's okay, I can wait too. You guys are way too stinking relational. So I hope that you guys had a wonderful Memorial Day weekend. My family and I got up the mountains to a family camp. And, and I know everybody, here's the funny thing about social media. Everyone's like, oh, it looks like you had such a wonderful time. I'm like, it was kind of painful. You get, you get away with one another for three solid nights and days and you begin to realize just how much work you have cut out for yourself as a family and working through stuff. So they're like, did you have fun? I'm like, oh, as much fun as going to the dentist, you know. And yet at the same time we do, you, you lean in and it was absolutely worth it. Because to identify what we need to work through and grow in is important. And somebody jokingly out in the hallway says, hey, you better not go away very often. Your partner in crime killed it last week. And... And I'm going, you know what? Then I'm going to go away more often, quite honestly. If that's what it means for me to go away is that somebody else gets to speak up and do a fabulous job, amen. I'm all for that. So anyway, glad to be back with you this week. Um, We are continuing our conversation uh, as we're working through the Bible. What we've been doing lately is actually ever since Easter, we've just been unpacking what it means to have the Holy Spirit in our lives and the effects of that. And today we're going to be using uh, Romans 14. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, grab one in the seat back in front of you, pull that out, turn with me to Romans chapter 14. So far in this series, just to kind of bring you up to speed, if you're just, you know, with us today for the first time, or maybe you haven't been a part of this whole conversation, what does it mean to have, when we invite Jesus into our hearts, right? Because this is the language we typically use in the church. Have you invited Jesus into your heart? Which, by the way, is not found anywhere in scripture. But when we use that language in the church, we are not talking about asking God for a little two-inch version of Jesus to go ahead and sit on some little throne in one of the atriums of your heart. That's not what we're talking about. Although I would imagine some of us haven't really fully thought through that, but maybe have that image in your mind. What we're talking about when we invite Christ into our heart is to invite the same spirit of God that empowered Jesus throughout his public ministry, the same spirit that ultimately raised him from the dead to come into our lives and empower us to do what he created us to do and to live out of the life that he came to bring us. And so the Holy Spirit resides within us when we accept the gift of grace that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. And the Holy Spirit is God's stamp of ownership on us. His way of saying, this one is mine. But it's not just a badge that we wear. The Holy Spirit actually does a number of things as he comes into our life. First off, he brings about our adoption. We literally become adopted into the family of God so that Jesus Christ, God's one and only begotten, which means like only one and only naturally kind of like child would become our big brother. And we become part of the family so that we have just as much right to call our father in heaven, daddy, Abba, as Jesus does. That's the hope that we have. That is the truth that we find and we rest in when we invite the Holy Spirit into our lives. That we become his children and we can rest in that. And one of the things that we've experienced in that is that we become one big, beautiful, sometimes dysfunctional, but wonderful family. And I say sometimes dysfunctional because the reality is there's a ton of distinctions. We, we are very different people from lots of different walks of life that get thrown together. We may look a little bit vanilla in here. 
hopefully a little bit French vanilla. I mean, we're working on it. But we, we recognize that we have this tendency to just kind of clump up with people who are similar than us. And yet, even in a room full of people that seem similar to us, we recognize that there's radical differences that we carry in with us. And like this mosaic, have you guys ever seen a mosaic? I know a couple of people actually make them. Mosaics are made out of broken pieces of pottery or glass or other things like that with jagged edges. And those broken pieces are in a lot of ways like us. We are broken, imperfect representations of our Father God by ourselves. But when we come together, jagged edges and all, we begin to be put together in the hands of the master craftsman, our Father in heaven. Suddenly, we together become a reflection of his heart, of who he is to the world. That's what we, his family, the church, get to be, is a reflection of him. And we can only do it together. Just a bunch of dudes sitting in a room are not a complete representation of our Father God. And just a bunch of women sitting in a room together are not a complete representation of God. Just a bunch of Anglo-Saxon Protestants sitting in a room are not a representation of God. In the same way that a bunch of Republicans or Democrats isolated by ourselves represent the heart of God completely. And so we need one another. And we're actually stronger and better able to reflect his heart together than we are by ourselves. But we also recognize that within any community of Christ followers, those distinctions can actually be uh, create friction. That there are natural um, you know, fault lines that run through any grouping of people, including the church. And so how do we... How do we navigate life together when we have these areas of distinction and difference where we begin to look at one another and go, well, you're different from me in this. How how do we do life together? How do we worship God together? Because the reality is those kind of distinctions and differences, those kind of things that can just as easily break us apart and drive us into kind of separate camps, that's been happening since the very beginning of the church. We often romanticize the early church and say we want to be just like them right we want to be just like the first century church but but the first century church was full of just as much friction just as much disagreement just as much conflict as we experience within the modern church in fact most of the letters that are are, you know contained in the new testament Almost every single one of them was penned in large part to address conflict happening in one of the communities of Christ followers in the early church. And so we should not look at this as if this is just our issue, that we have this tendency to separate over these debatable kind of things. This has been happening from the very beginning of the body of Christ. When different people come together to try to worship together, it creates friction. It creates conflict. And oftentimes it leads to separation and a rupturing, which is sad because Jesus prayed, one of his final recorded prayers in Scripture in John 17, was that the world would see our unity, that we would be unified just as the Father and Son are unified, that we would be one, so that the world would recognize who it is that we serve, that our very unity in the face of our distinctions and our differences would be a testimony to the world about who we follow, that we would be that mosaic reflecting his heart. And sadly, in a lot of ways, the church has not been that. 
the church has become more known for what we're against than what we are for. We are often more outspoken about what we disagree about than what we do agree about. So how do we navigate this? And that is the very thing that Paul is going to address here in Romans chapter 14. Now, before we get there, let me just give you a little bit of context from where he's coming from. In chapter 13, one of the last things he says in the chapter leading into this is in verse 8 of chapter 13. He says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commands there may be are summed up in one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, why is he talking about this? Because Paul recognizes that within the fledgling church there in Rome that he's writing to, they may be unified in their faith in Jesus Christ as the the long-awaited Messiah, but that's kind of where their similarities cease. And he recognizes within that little community that he's writing to, you've got rich people and poor people trying to share a meal together and do life together. And that's going to create conflict. And you've got slaves and their owners who are suddenly sitting down to worship as equals. How do you figure that out? And you've got Men and women in a society where women are viewed as second-class citizens and where men are the power brokers trying to sit down and worship together as, as, as spiritually equal with one another. And it creates friction. And most importantly, probably from Paul's perspective, although all of these are important, the biggest source of conflict, the biggest area, the biggest fault line of friction is between Jewish Christ followers and Gentile Christ followers, both of whom recognize that Jesus is Lord, but then the Jews have imported some of their perspectives because they've been raised with the law of Moses. They believe that Jesus is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. So they're coming to Christ saying, hey, That's great that you Gentiles want to embrace Jesus as your Messiah, your Savior as well. But if you really want to take hold of him, you've got to also accept the Jewish law that God has given us. This law that shows us how to live as God's sons and daughters, as his representatives. With this litany of um, kosher laws, you can only eat certain foods. You cannot eat food that has lifeblood in it. You cannot eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. That is an affront to our creator. And the Gentiles are like, why can't we eat food that's been sacrificed to idols? That's not a big deal. You know, it's not like we were worshiping that idol. It's just meat. Why is the lifeblood, why is that such a big deal? Or just eating food. Or, or the Jews saying, hey, if you, are, if you are genuinely following Jesus, then you need to embrace these holy days. All of these, the, the whole worship calendar, you need to recognize and worship on these particular days. And the Gentiles are like, why, why are those days more important? It's not like that's our history. Our history is Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us. That's where our history begins. And so there's conflict going on. And how do we live this out? And it's creating friction. 
And so Paul begins by saying, listen, all of the law that you're trying to hold on to, you Jewish Christians, all of that law is summed up in one law, one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. That love sums it all up. And then on the heels of that, in chapter 14, he begins to wade into the friction that's coming out of how do we worship God with our differences. Let me just go ahead and read the whole thing and then we'll dive in piece by piece. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own minds. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It's written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment upon one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Listen, guys, I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know to be good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourselves and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Now... 
That is a theological fire hose. There is a ton in there, and I'm going to try to unpack that in the next 20 minutes or so. I'm going to be able to only scratch the surface. I got to tell you, this is probably one of my top three favorite chapters in all of Scripture. One I find myself going back to again and again and again, because the reality is I recognize that just as in the New Testament church, We've got a bunch of gray areas in our modern church. We've got a bunch of areas where we experience friction between brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, I had a really hard time when one of my friends walked in with his Dodger shirt on today. (laughs) No, I'm just joking. I really don't believe baseball is even a sport, so it's not even a big deal. (laughs) I'm just a... Oh, you turned me off? Fair enough. Fair enough. Listen, I, I appreciate I appreciate that some of you enjoy baseball as a sport. I'm just a, a frustrated water polo player that has to wait up until like 2 a.m. during the Olympics to watch my sport. So please give me grace. I appreciate that as one who is weaker in this than you. We got a lot of areas of disagreement within the church. We got dog lovers, we got cat lovers, and we have some of you who just say, I don't want pets at all, right? <laughs> These are ridiculous things. But, but, but what about the, the areas, and when I'm talking about debatable matters, when Paul is talking about this, we are not talking about issues that, that Scripture speaks to directly and says, this is wrong, you must not do that. Those are not up for debate. And there's plenty of them. Don't murder. We know that that is not something that we as Christ followers have the right to do. Don't slander. Don't put somebody down. Don't gossip. Don't hold on to anger. Don't lust. These are things that scripture is clear about. And we are not trying to suggest that we just, every, all scripture is relative. But there's a lot of other areas of disagreement. A lot of other areas within the church where it's not quite as clear and very loving Christ followers who love Jesus, who have a high view of God's word, genuinely come down on different sides of this. I mean, things like smoking, right? Is, is that wrong or right? Or alcohol. We understand scripture may say, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery and said, be filled with the spirit. But is it wrong for somebody to drink alcohol at all? Um, tattoos. I remember my grandmother, when my cousin got an, a tattoo, my grandmother basically says, you either get rid of it or you are disowned. And yet there's an entire generation of, of young men and women who have tattoos all over their bodies. And is, are they in sin or entertainment? What do we watch? What do we, you know, what do we spend our time going to? Some of us would say, you don't go, you should not go to rated R movies at all. And others of you are there opening night, right? <laughs> Halloween. Should we celebrate a, a, a day or you know, that comes out of kind of a pay, more pagan holiday? Should we allow our kids to celebrate that? And for that matter, since they, there are some pagan roots within even Easter and Christmas, should, should well-meaning Christ followers celebrate those days in that way? Should, should we talk about Santa? Should we talk about the Easter Bunny? Those kind of things. These are things that Christ followers grapple with and disagree on quite often. Baptism. Is it okay for a child to be sprinkled baptized as an infant at their, you know, at, at their dedication? Or does, should they have a certain way? Is it only acceptable for somebody to be immersed as an adult when they have chosen? 
there are people within our own church who disagree on that. And that's okay. How do we, how do we worship together? Is it okay to have electric guitars and rock music in worship? Or is the accordion, accordion, no, is, is, is the piano or an organ the only acceptable way? Are hymns the only acceptable way? By the way, hymns, more, a lot of them actually were old drinking tunes that were then new, new words were given to. So back in the day, the hymns were like rap music in church. It's like, ah! What do you do with that? Now today we're like, oh, of course, hymns are like tradition. We need that. Tradition. How about the translation? Is there a particular translation of the Bible that the Holy Spirit has anointed more than others and that we should teach out of? There are different people who have very... I've had a lot of conversations about people going, why do you choose the NIV? Why haven't you used the New King James Version? Don't you realize the NIV means nearly inspired or nearly inspired version? It was close, but not quite there. Or, or, or how about politics? Okay, do we really want to... Is God... I'm not going to go into it, but is God... Republican? Is God a Democrat? Is he independent? Do you realize, I, I, I am aware of this, that during the last presidential election, we had a couple of people choose to stop attending our church because they realized that there were some people in the church that were planning to vote differently than they were on presidential candidates. Like, oh, we disagree about that? We're not all on the same page? No, we're not. That's why we don't talk politics in here. Or, or, or how about some of these theological differences were very, very stable, loving people of God read scripture and come away with differing perspectives on different areas like Calvinism or Arminianism or complementarianism or egalitarianism or revelation. This is a scary thing that we kind of avoid, right? Uh, but, but. Pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib. And if you don't understand any of those, it's just, you know, you're probably like, count yourself lucky because sometimes ignorance is bliss. These are painful conversations that are, that can be divisive friction points within the body of Christ. And there are people who love Jesus on both sides who think passionately about that. And we've got to navigate all of it. And these are just a sampling. Of the, of the kind of fault lines that run not just through Christendom out there, but run through our own little community church here. This church that loves so stinking well that when I say, okay, everybody stop talking, you don't stop talking because you just love one another really, really, really well. And yet even here, we've got fault lines. How do we navigate this? How do we love one another without separating over some of these debatable issues. Well, Paul begins by addressing that. And in verse 1, he says, to accept one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. When, we're talking, when he's talking about somebody whose faith is weak, he is not talking about somebody who does not have faith in Jesus Christ, who's kind of like, ah, Maybe, but you know, maybe Buddha's got something, you know, or I'm just, I'm not quite sure what I think about that. That's not what he's talking about. What he is recognizing is that within the, in the church in Rome and the church at large, 
There are people who love Jesus, but at the same time, they are not able to fully rest in the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross that has purchased for us a a new identity in Christ. And they're still holding on in many ways to the law. And so when he's talking about the weak, at least for the Romans, he's actually talking about the Jewish Christians who accept that Jesus is their Messiah, but they're having a really, really hard time letting go of the Mosaic law. Because for them, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, and and the 360-some-odd other commandments found in the Old Testament scriptures about everything from the food that we're supposed to eat to the days we're supposed to, to celebrate certain things in the Jewish calendar to how we're supposed to deal with if you, if you somehow make yourself ceremonially unclean because you touch somebody with a skin disease, then this is how you purify yourself. And they're saying, yes, I love Jesus, but I can't let go of this because this would feel, it would feel like an affront to God not to continue to do this. And, and Paul is saying, accept those people who are weak in their faith, who cannot rest in the fact that Jesus has set them free from the law. Because the whole law is summed up in one command. Love one another. That's the heart of the law. They are holding on to the letter of the law. They can't rest in the heart of the law, and they cannot rest in the freedom that Jesus purchased for them. But rather than writing them off, rather than putting them down, rather than kind of shaking your head and being disappointed in what a weak brother or sister they are because they can't rest in the freedom, what does he say? He says, accept them in spite of their weak faith. Without quarreling over disputable matters, one person's faith we'll go this way. one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. And the one who eats everything should not treat with contempt. That's a strong word, isn't it? Contempt is when you look at somebody and go, "Oh my gosh, you are so immature. You are so you have you have built your entire worldview off of tradition, and you're not willing to budge at all." And quite honestly, I'm I'm kind of disgusted by your perspective. It's an affront to me. Don't look down with contempt upon them just because they don't have that kind of freedom. I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have a clue where I'm at. <laughs> all right. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything because they view it as an affront to God and that this is how I live out my faith must uh, must not judge the one who does for God has accepted them, both of them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall and they will stand For the Lord is able to make them stand. One of the things that Paul is getting at here is the human tendency towards prejudice. And prejudice is just a big word for prejudging people based upon the differences that we have. And we are really good at it. I am really good at it. 
Oftentimes, we don't even realize the kind of prejudice we carry around in our hearts. When we look at someone, we're instantly saying, we're seeing how they're dressed. We're seeing the color of their skin. We're seeing our differences. And we are kind of categorizing them one way or the other. And we do this within the church. Oh, they, you know, they read the NIV as opposed to the King James. Or they they use the, the New Living Translation in their worship. You know, and we write them off because it's different from us. Or, oh, their pastor wears a suit when he preaches, huh? What, is he trying to impress God? Doesn't he realize that Jesus wore sandals? Yeah, whatever. I'd love to wear sandals, I'm just saying. Um, or, or, oh, they use laser lights and, and fog machines in their worship, huh? That's not worship, that's a rock concert, right? Am I the only one who's ever, uh, okay. And in so doing, what do we do? We write people off as if the Holy Spirit is not present in those worship services because it's different from what we experience. Oh, my son, a couple of weeks ago, I go, hey, Ethan, why aren't you worshiping, buddy? These songs are boring. Oh, okay, well, what would you prefer? Rap? And inside something dies, right? I go, oh, okay. And he goes, hey, Dad. Do you think that you can ask Pete to, to play a rap song one time? And I'm thinking, oh, Pete's so tragically white. I don't think he's able to. <laughs> anyway, we'll try at some point. But, but all that to say, we have prejudices. And, and I, it, it's easy to kind of point fingers at one another or at other people and, and play it down. Let me just be honest. God has exposed a ton of prejudice within my own heart. And there's been a number of times that he's done that. One of those times was probably about 10 years ago now. I was a pastor at another church down the street. We had been experiencing some explosive growth. So our staff had been swelling. And we had almost 50 people in a room at one point that were all staff members. And somebody just kind of tongue-in-cheek goes, Hey, does anybody in here think that they can say everybody's name in the room? And even though we were a staff member of a church and it was only staff in this room, nobody stood up and said, I can do it. Right? And then after about 10, 15 seconds of kind of awkward silences, everybody's like, no, I'm not going to try that. I would fail miserably. A hand goes up. And it's Carlos, the janitor. And, And I have to admit, in my heart, I'm like, what, he thinks he can say everybody's name? He's the janitor. How could he possibly? Right? And I realized I'd never had a conversation with Carlos at this point. I'm a pastor. He's the janitor. I, and by the way, I know I'm, in, I'm indicting myself right now for my prejudice. What? How could he possibly know? And then Carlos stands up and in his broken English, he begins to go around the room saying everybody's name. And he comes to me. Eric. Wayman, and, and, and he just keeps going. And I'm just like, my, per, my perception of him is changing radically as he's going around. And he did, he, he said everybody's name, first and last name, first try. And I'm just like, dang, that's amazing. And then somebody asked him, Carlos, how do you know everybody's name? And he told us that as he goes around the church cleaning, He's praying for every single person as he's cleaning their area by name. And in that moment, I was cut to the heart because I realized 
that who this man was and who I thought this man was are two radically different things. And my prejudice had blinded me to the unbelievable servant of God who was in my midst. And I got to know Carlos over the next several years. And quite honestly, my respect for him only deepened because there were moments where I went, there is nobody on this staff and nobody in this church who exemplifies the heart of God better than that man. He was a pastor in every way through the way he served. And he embodied and continues to this day to embody the heart of Jesus Christ that says the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the servant of all. That is Carlos. And I aspire to be half the man and half the Christ follower he is. And I just wonder how often we write people off. We write the Carloses in our world off because they look a different way. They're a different gender. They come from a different socioeconomic background. They, they speak a different language. They've had different experiences. They may have ink on their bodies or look completely put together. And we write our brothers and our sisters off because they're different from us. So I don't know about you, but prejudging is pretty stinking easy for me. And Paul is speaking to that here and just going, hey, you've got to resist that. Particularly when it comes to these friction points where people disagree with you. Do not look with contempt upon somebody who differs from you. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? This is verse 4. To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own minds. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Remember, Jesus died on the cross to purchase us out of our slavery to sin and to restore us back into relationship to our Father God. So we are no longer our own. We have been purchased at a price, the price of Jesus Christ's life. And every other follower of Jesus Christ has been purchased by that same price. So do not think for a moment that it's your place to judge them. They already have a Lord. And for this reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or your sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. As it's written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, keep in mind, each one of us is going to give an account of ourselves to God. He is our judge. He is our Lord. He's the one who purchased us out of slavery and he alone is the one to tell us how we are to live. Therefore, verse 13, let us stop passing judgment upon one another. The point that Paul is trying to make here is that when it comes 
to disputable matters, those areas of friction that we experience about how we worship God and live it out and what is acceptable when we read Scripture, that all of us ultimately are going to have to give an answer to God because we don't belong to ourselves. We all have a Lord, and we will all have to answer for our responses. But that also means it is not our place to put ourselves into the position of judge, jury, and executioner. It is not our place to write someone off and determine whether or not... There are people that when it comes to disputable matters, if you disagree with them, they will question your salvation. I don't even know if you believe in God. It's so easy to do that. And we're all going to have to give an answer for the choices that we make. So he says, therefore, let's stop passing judgment upon one another. God's going to do that. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. You know, before I keep going, let me just speak to this. We, if we have the Holy Spirit in us, we are called to follow the Holy Spirit's lead. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, is to willingly lay down what we want. Are we free? Yes, we're free from the law, but we're not free to live any way that we want. We have been set free so that we can follow God. And as the Holy Spirit leads, we are basically, as a follower of Jesus Christ, we say, I am willing to follow you. Now, what Paul is getting at is that, listen, I am convinced that no food is unclean in and of itself. You want to have a hot dog? Have a hot dog, even though it's not kosher. You want to eat blood sausage? Oh, go for it, right? That's, you have freedom in Christ. But if somebody is convicted for them that it is not clean and for them to eat it, it would be a sin. I was thinking, well, what what does that look like? It would be like my son Grayson, my youngest, being fully convinced in his mind that that old kind of statement, step on a crack, break your mother's back, is true, right? Now, if, if my son steps on a crack, will it affect his mother's back? Hello? This isn't a hard one. It, will, my, will my beautiful wife's back be broken if my son steps on a crack? Thank you! And yet, if for Grayson, he believes that stepping on a crack will break his mother's back, and then he willfully steps on a crack, then he has sinned against his mother in his heart even though it doesn't affect her physiologically. Make sense? In the same way, Paul is saying, if for you, you are convicted in your heart that something is sinful, and you do it anyway, then you are sinning. Even if Jesus Christ sets you free from that. Even if the law no longer has those those shackles on you, if you feel like you are not free to do a certain thing and you do it anyway, you are sinning.
and those of us who have freedom, who walk down the streets completely not worried about if there's a crack in front of us because we're woke. We understand that that will not affect our mamas. It is not our place to judge the Graysons of this world who skip over the cracks. So stop passing judgment upon one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of your brother or sister. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing, nothing is unclean in itself. You can step on as many cracks as you want. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. And if your brother or your sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. I am convinced in the Lord Jesus that alcohol is not in and of itself a sin. But I have brothers and sisters in our church who have struggled with alcoholism or have had alcohol, have had issues with alcohol in their families. And for them to even touch alcohol would cause them great pain because there's either a slippery slope or quite honestly, it is, it is disgusting to them because they've seen the damage that it causes. I feel completely free to have a glass of wine. Because I know that it will not lead to drunkenness. But for me to flaunt that freedom in front of my brothers or my sister is unloving. And so while I am free in Christ, love compels me to limit my freedom out of love for another. Theologically, We have some theological differences in this room when it comes to how we interpret Scripture and understand it and how we live it out. I'm not going to open that can of worms right now, but I'm saying there are some of us who have been sitting in contempt upon one another because other people disagree with us. And rather than being open to listening and conversing, we shut them out and push them away and judge them as small-minded or broken individuals who have nothing to add to the conversation. And we've stopped listening. May I simply remind you that Jesus' harshest words were reserved for those who were so prideful in their belief that they had the monopoly on the right answer that they'd stopped listening. His harshest words were reserved for the Pharisees who were supposedly the religious experts. And in so being, they stopped listening altogether and they were unteachable. And he spoke more about the hardness of their hearts than about the law because it was the hardness of their heart that was limiting their ability to hear the heart of God. Am I suggesting to you that you are wrong? No, not theologically. I'm not suggesting. What I am suggesting is that if you're not willing to listen to another person, and boy, oh boy, do we see this in our society right now, where we surround ourselves with people who say what we already think and it just becomes an echo chamber that affirms, yeah, I'm right and they're wrong and they're stupid. What our world needs right now, sure, more love, sweet love, but our world also, love looks like listening. 
to somebody who disagrees with us. Listening in love, listening to understand their heart, listening to understand their story, listening to why it matters for them. And if you're not willing to listen, then I would question if you're loving them. All right, soapbox moment over. So if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Now, let me ask this question. How could somebody be destroyed by what we, by, by us exercising our freedom? Well, one of two ways, right? For, for, the Jew, for the Gentile Christians who had permission to eat any meat that they found, they're eating the meat that they bought in the in the courts that could easily have been sacrificed to an idol or still had blood in it. They're eating in front of a Jewish Christian could lead that Jewish Christian to go, well, you know, I'm not really, I don't feel comfortable with it, but they're doing it. So I might as well join with them. And in so doing, they would be stepping on a crack for themselves and they would be sinning. And it could lead them down a slippery slope. It could be me going, hey, listen, I understand there's alcohol in your background, but it's a drink of wine. It's one glass. Come on. And one drink for me leads to 12 for them. And in so doing could lead them down that slippery slope into destruction. Or the Gentiles flaunting their freedom may not lead the Jewish Christians to say, well, maybe we should do it as well. It could be just the opposite. They could look at the Gentiles, Gentile Christians just reveling in their freedom. And the Jewish Christians go, this is disgusting. What an unbelievable affront to God that they would act this way. They're not submitting to God. They're not embracing the, the, the Jewish roots here. I'm out. If this, what, if this is what it means to follow Jesus Christ, I want nothing to do with Jesus. And in so doing, in them practicing their freedom openly, it could lead their brothers or sisters who are weaker in their understanding of the freedom we have in Christ away from Jesus Christ. And what is Paul saying? You are free indeed, but do not think that that gives you carte blanche permission to just revel in your freedom if it hurts another person. You must limit your freedom out of love. Is this making sense? Cool. I'm glad to hear that. Let's keep going. Verse 16. Uh, And this is why. If you practice your freedom in front of them, and they're so disgusted by it that they run away from Jesus, then you're no longer acting in love. And you are causing something that you know to be good, namely Jesus Christ and the freedom he has given us. You're causing that to be spoken of as evil. And so Paul says here in verse 16, do not let what you know to be good, namely your freedom, to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking as if that's why Jesus died for us. That's not, Jesus didn't die to establish the tulip. For those of you who are Calvinist, right? Jesus didn't die for a particular theological perspective that is your hobby horse or matters deeply to you. That's not why he died. He died to lead others to Jesus Christ so that the gospel would be central. Jesus didn't even die so that we would get rid of all idolatry in our lives. Although I mean, Oh, man, you know what? I, I'm, I'll, I'll talk more about that next week, okay? Because I'm, I'm just going to go down a rabbit trail that we don't need to go down right now. He died to set us free. 
He died so that we could have relationship with God. He died so that we could be restored back to the purpose for which God created us in the first place, namely to have relationship with him and to represent him so that others would come to know him. We get to be his ambassadors of hope and restoration in this world. But if you use your freedom, and in practicing your freedom, you actually push people away, then you're no longer acting in love. You're choosing your freedom over sons and daughters of God for whom Jesus Christ died. I don't want to do that. So let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. This is verse 19. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. Let me, be, let me just be really transparent with you. There are areas of freedom that I believe I have in Jesus Christ that I am even currently limiting out of love for brothers and sisters who, who it would be damaging to relationship. And that is not to say I just say, oh, they're right and I'm wrong. I feel firmly committed and and convinced in the Lord that I have freedom to do certain things, and yet I am choosing to limit it out of a desire to be in community as we walk together, hoping that as we do life together, we will actually be able to strengthen one another. Iron sharpens iron, but it also creates sparks, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with the sparks of disagreement. I'm okay with people being challenged. I'm okay with me being challenged. Although sometimes I seem to back away from it because it's uncomfortable and it's scary. And so sometimes I avoid it and I just go eat ice cream instead. (laughs) My prayer for our church, for this iteration of the community of Christ is that we would be like that mosaic, that together we would represent the face of God, not just in spite of, because of our differences, politically, theologically, values-wise, that we would sharpen and refine. I've been using this a lot. You know, remember with body of Christ? When When we just surround ourselves with people with the same perspective, it's like just working on curls. And all of a sudden, this part of your arm is getting really strong. And in the process, we say, I don't want to be around people. It really hurts when I work on triceps. I just want to be around. They, don't, they make me feel uncomfortable. And so we begin to isolate ourselves. And, and all of us with big biceps just hang out with other people with big biceps. We have no tricep. And all of a sudden, we walk around like T-Rex. <laughs> this looks weird. This isn't how God designed us is to have, you know... We need to be willing to do... This is a ridiculous example, and I'm sorry. (laughs) But you get it. If you are in here and you feel like you have a perspective that is not appreciated, you're not heard, and you're thinking, I want to get out of here because, quite honestly, this is really hard. Yeah, it is. Community is hard. Iron sharpening iron creates sparks. But it also refines us, sharpens us, makes us better, more useful tools to be used by God to advance his kingdom. And we need you triceps as much as we need the biceps. And my prayer for our church is that we would grow in our ability to listen to people who disagree with us. 
that you would not simply surround yourself with Fox News or CNN or Rush Limbaugh or, you know, you just fill in the blank. Please stop listening to one source. And more importantly, listen to one another. You think you already know? Cool. I'm glad. I'm, I, I'm glad. For, there is so much maturity in this room that sometimes I feel awkward being the one who gets up here and speaks a lot. I need to learn from you. But just because you know a lot does not give you a monopoly on the right perspective. Does not mean that somebody who is younger than you, a different gender than you, a different socioeconomic status than you, has had different experiences than you, has nothing to add. We need one another. And the most damaging thing we can do is to sit in judgment upon one another with contempt in our hearts and write off our brother and sister. Or, one of the most damaging things we can do is say, I'm free in Christ, so I'm going to do what I want to do without any concern for the effect that it could have on community. The heart of what I hear Paul saying is, you are free. In Christ, free from the law, but you are constrained by love. Let that be your limit. And in order to know how to love people who are different than you, it means you have to actually not just become students of the world at large, but you need to become students of one another. You need to be willing to listen more than you speak. We need one another desperately. The last thing the church needs, the last thing the world needs is for us to divide along party lines or along theological differences that believers on both sides of the conversation genuinely feel right. We need to move towards one another because we will be stronger and we will be a better representation of our Father God. Not just in spite of our differences, but because of them. That is a testimony to the world, that we are his followers. When love rings true. Does this make sense? Okay, good. I'm going to be done now. Can I have the worship team come forward? Here's, 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 my, here's my challenge for you this week. We, we are going to dive deep. We, we've just started scratching the surface. So we're going to dive deeply into this next week. There's a, a really well-known... Um, statement throughout Christendom that comes up again and again that I think is just so powerful and so true. We're going to explore it next week. And this comes out of a really bloody time in Christian history. It says this, in essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. And in everything, charity or love. We're going to talk about what is essential. What's not essential and how can we love one another in spite of our differences? That's where we're going to go next week. Here's my challenge for this week. Would you please spend some time devotionally reading Romans 14? It is powerful and we've just begun scratching the surface. Please, this week, three, four, five times, just let it wash over you and invite the Holy Spirit to begin to examine you. To begin filtering out your prejudices. 
to begin exposing the contempt that is that is put down roots in your heart towards individuals or groups that are different from you. And I just gonna, I'm just going to trust the Holy Spirit to work in and through that. And by the way, if you want to read it in context, then read chapter 13 and chapter 15 as well so you get the whole gist of what Paul is saying. But Father God, we need you desperately. I'm so grateful, Jesus, that we are united in you and that we get to be family. I'm grateful for the ways you take broken, jagged people and you unite us together into a beautiful mosaic that reflects you so much better than we ever could by ourselves. I thank you for our differences, Father, as uncomfortable as it sometimes makes us. May we honor you in everything. And may we be known by our love. Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's just worship our Father God together.